0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing. We are live-streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live-stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring you timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta and take questions from the public and the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, I would like to welcome all of you back and welcome Dr. Vipond to start things off with an update on COVID-19 in our province. Dr. Vipond, who is muted? You are muted, Dr. Vipond. Not anymore. Not
1: anymore. Um, So uh, yeah, as as per usual, the stats are late on the days that we're broadcasting. Um, So I can't present uh, today's uh, numbers, unfortunately, Uh, but I can't present the ones that were released yesterday that covered the four days and do a little bit of editorializing. So um, I'm no longer um, going to be reporting the percent week on week increase or decrease um, because I really think that the cases per day no longer really represent any kind of consistent um, uh, measure week over week with the changing criteria for for testing. So I mean, they basically um, dropped over the last four days from 6,000 to around 3,500 over that four-day period. But who knows what that really means uh, in reality? A little bit more useful, I would say, with the positivity um, because at least that gives you a sense as that you know what percent of, of the of the cases that are being tested are positive, and it's still extremely high. Remembering that the WHO, um, is set, has set like 5% as the criteria for the beginning of reopening of society. Um, we're continuing to be very flat at around 35 to 38%. And that was pretty consistent over the weekend. Uh, the really big thing that we um, need to look at is hospitalizations. Huge, huge revisions that go on. So you really can't rely on any daily numbers. You really have to go um, look at the in totality of the numbers going back like at least a week, just watch them backfill. So the curve looks like it's kind of starting to slow down, but that's all artifactual. And what we really um, know is is that, uh, you know, as time goes on, they, they increase the day totals for uh, each day, which means that even though they may say, oh, like, uh, um, like f- uh, Friday, uh, Thursday, um, they initially reported, last Thursday, they reported a drop of eight, and really it was an increase of 41. So that just shows you how how incredible it, it changes. But I mean, the most important thing to know uh, for the inpatients is that that seven-day increase is about 55%, it's 56.7%. Week over week, that's going to, um, I believe I used uh, Friday for the, the, uh, the, or Thursday for the week to week comparison. And then that's totally consistent with the last week's growth of in between 50 and 60%. And if you know your math, you know that 50% increases week over week, that's just exponential growth. Um, so you know when you're at 100, uh, 50% increases to 150. But when you're at 1000, 50% increases 500. So we really um, are in big trouble with that ongoing exponential growth. Um, we continue to see um, rises in the ICU. Um, the I- ICU 7-day uh, rise is 28%, now at 104, still much lower than in previous waves, but uh, arguably um, you know, with exponential growth going on there, that's not going to last too much uh, longer. Um, pa- pediatric uh, admits over the, the four-day period of 45, so averaging about 10 a day, including seven to the ICU, and all seven going to the ICU was under the age of five, and of course um, it's really important to, to mention the um, the death of uh, a child age five to nine. That would be the third pediatric death since the beginning of the year. Um, so a, a moment of of respect for those kids who've, who've given their lives. Um, and 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 the deaths in total at 32. I used to report uh, demographics, both the the age curves, and the um, and the location curves. And I just don't think they're useful again. So I'm not publishing those anymore. But the one age uh, element that's really uh, useful is the 80 plus. Um, they all qualify for um, PCR testing. And so uh, if you just look at that single curve, you can see that that continues to, to, to rise um, quickly. Uh, the only other thing I mentioned before we it over to an amazing panel is um, the Running on Empty campaign Uh, launched Twitter campaign launched by uh, Dr. Bakshi it will be featured tonight on the national and um, an incredible interview and an incredible campaign drawing attention to how hard it is to be a healthcare worker um, when the the government has given up on on mitigation measures and given up on supporting us so um, I turn it back over to you Michelle and um, I'm going to sign off so that the panel uh, can do their work.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. And yeah, if you haven't had a chance to check out that campaign that is currently ongoing on Twitter with the hashtag running on empty, um, it is beyond tragic, but I think so important to the conversation of the ramifications that these last two years, that ongoing moral injury and trauma has had on our frontline healthcare workers. Um, I want to jump right into today's panel. We have been referring to it internally as policy, politics, and the plague. And in Alberta, that is a massive topic. Um, We have an exceptional panel of experts today who I'm going to bring right into this stream because I have lots of questions. You all have lots of questions, and I am just thrilled to have everybody with us. I'm gonna let you guys do a round of introductions. I'll begin with you, Dr. Hardcastle, and then we can just go sort of clockwise around the screen.
2: Sure, I'm uh, Lorraine Hardcastle. I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Law and the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. And my research focuses on health law and policy.
0: Oh, Dwayne and I are both unmuting him. Oh, now you're muted again, Dwayne, because I tried to unmute you. There we go. We won't. Okay. Yeah.
3: So uh, I'm Dwayne Brad. I'm a professor of political science uh, in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University, and I am currently editing a book called "The Blue Storm" on the 2019 Alberta election and the first three years of the Kenny government. And obviously, the major theme of that book is COVID. That's the storm.
4: Hi, I'm Graham Thompson. I'm a political columnist. 25 years with the Edmonton Journal. I left about three years ago, heck, three and a half years ago, and now freelancing as a columnist for the CBC, uh, iPolitics, uh, Alberta Views, and uh, others, as well as doing a lot of panels like this on TV and radio.
0: You were muted, my dear, now you're not. Oh, but we can't hear you. Did we not do? Uh...
5: Okay. Can you hear me there now? We All right. Yes, we All right. can. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I am Ubaka Ubargo, and I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta, uh, and I do work in the area of health law and science policy.
0: Thank you all so very much for joining us. So as always, we are going to aim to keep this discussion conversational and try to tackle as many questions as we can from the media and the public. So feel free, panelists, to unmute yourself as inspiration strikes you um, and or mute yourself to prevent feedback. I would like to start us off, and it's just a free for all, whoever wishes to join in with the big one that has been on everybody's mind lately. What authority does Dr. Hinshaw have?
2: I think I think, you know, legally, she has powers in the act to to pass public health orders Um, legally under the act. She also has an advisory role. Um, But there seems to be a divide between her role legally as as one who makes orders, um, but then her role as as an advisor to government and, and she seems to have landed in in that camp as as being where where she she is settled. Um, I think you know one one issue that all of this has brought up is well then why not fix the law so that the law better reflects what she's actually doing um, and also begs the question which which I think I'll probably kick to Ivaka cuz I know he has thoughts on this which is well what should her role be should he, she be independent of the government should she be able to independently advise them or should she be more of a civil servant and and if she's the latter then um then, then perhaps she shouldn't be the one at the press conferences acting as the, the spokesperson for what are political decisions.
5: Uh, yeah, I'll jump in uh, very quickly. I would agree with that. I think the, the law needs to be cleared up um, because um, even though to, to a lawyer, it, it's not very confusing. She has very clear authority under Section 29 of the Act to uh, make orders. And I think that section was designed with uh, epidemics and pandemics and disease outbreaks in mind. So even though she has an advisory role, the relevant section for all intents and purposes when it comes to a pandemic uh, is section 29, where she has direct independent authority to act. Uh, but, you know, be that as it may, it is confusing for Albertans, and I think the government needs to clear it up. And very quickly on the question of whether she, sh- who, you know, should she have that role? I'm of the, uh, I mean, the canvas says she should. I, I think you can not politicize a pandemic, uh, as we've seen uh, with what's gone on in the past two years. And I think, you, you know, if you want to end it quickly, you need science to take the lead. Uh, and that's why I think she should have that authority.
3: Uh, I'm going to take a contrary uh, view on that. And I'm going to argue that her most appropriate role is an advisor to the premier and to uh, cabinet as any senior civil servant does and the reason for that is the premier and the health minister are ultimately accountable to to albertans because they're elected uh where the chief medical officer of health is not elected therefore not directly accountable uh, to Albertans now, why does she appear at the press conferences? I think it's part of scientific briefings, and she wouldn't be the first civil servant to show up at press briefings uh, on this matter, and she has done a fairly good job at deflecting any political question aimed at her. People are upset sometimes with how she's dodged those sorts of questions by saying, "You know, I don't make these decisions, uh, but that is the truth and and that should be her position and, and her role, and I think the reason that she's there is to give greater context onto the numbers and to give some greater legitimacy to the press briefings as being the chief medical officer of health. And I, I agree with Dwayne
4: um, on that, except she has stepped over the um, the line. Like She should be a, a civil servant giving, it's called, I guess, uh, fearless advice to government, and then government does take that advice and does what it wants. They are the ones who actually have to wear it. But she kind of stepped beyond that in the summer when she said that she was um, overtly in favor of, you know, opening up on July 1st, the best summer ever. She didn't use that term, best summer ever. But she was clearly on side, overtly on side with Kenny. And I thought she's gone too far because they should be, and she's done a good job most times of, you're right, Dwayne, when she's pushed by reporters, what advice did you give to the government? She doesn't say it's the government's decision, and that's who has to wear it, good or bad. But she did, to me, step beyond that in the summer. But beyond that, in August, on the eve of the federal election, it was a Friday, and we knew the election was coming. Kenny knew it was coming. He talked about it on the Sunday. They're going to call the election uh, through the prime minister. And that's when she announced that she wasn't going to um, lift any more restrictions. You know, They're going to do a lot more restrictions on the following Monday, and they stopped that. They kept the lid on it and for six weeks, which is basically the length of the federal election. So it got, you got the impression that what she was doing, there was a favor to the, the conservatives. I'm not saying this is what actually was happening behind the scenes, but it gave the optics, the impression that she, on the eve of the federal election, wasn't going to change anything in Alberta, which could have led to a spike, and that would have reflected badly on Kenny and therefore badly on the federal conservatives. Of course, that was what actually happened in the campaign. But yeah, I just got the impression that she, it just seemed to be odd, making this announcement on the eve of the federal election that seemed to be uh, trying to avoid any uh, spike in cases uh, during the federal election. That didn't actually work out that way. But the problem is at times I think that, um, to me, Hinshaw's deferring too much to the provincial government.
3: And I will say the 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 month of uh, the summer of 2021. I agree we did see times where she moved beyond what her role in my view would would be. And I think part of the problem is that the premier was gone. And the health minister was gone, and there was no political leadership, particularly in in August. And so her decision, for example, to stop testing, tracing, and self-isolation, and that seemed to be made on her own, or at least she was out there by herself. But two years is a very long time, and I think with the exception of that summer period, um, she has deflected, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, the political questions back to the uh, minister's. So, Uh, listening to this... can I wait quickly?
0: Please, Ibaka, please. No, that's great.
5: So, I I think we shouldn't really confuse what should be the case with what is actually in the legislation. It is very clear in the legislation that she has the authority to make independent uh, orders. And she has, in fact, done that. Over and over again, there's, what, now? About 50 orders that she has issued under that authority, and she's cited that authority. Uh, the, The fact that she conveniently chooses to say, I'm just an advisor, uh, is legally uh, incorrect. Uh, I can understand that it's probably politically palatable, uh, but it's also problematic for Albertans because we don't know who's making the decisions. We clearly do not know who's making the decisions um, and we don't know who is accountable. So the argument you made, Dwayne, about accountability is actually more confusing from an accountability standpoint. We need to know who's making the decisions and we don't.
3: I don't think it's I don't think it's confusing because a lot of times ministers in whatever portfolio they're in are simply adopting the positions that come from their department. But it's the minister, it's the premier, it's the government as a whole that is ultimately accountable for the advice that they follow or that they don't follow. So we, we know what the government has done. We really don't know whether there has been contrary advice provided nor should we. This is not unique to any other civil servant relationship in my
2: I think, though, that that one way to sort of solve this, if we're thinking about how to clean up the law, is to have the, the pandemic be, be driven by ministerial order rather than have it be driven by public health order. And, and some provinces do that. Some of the maritime provinces, you see very limited orders from a medical officer of health and you see the legal response being their ministerial orders or in some jurisdictions regulations. And I think that that is probably more clear.
4: You know, I got going to say, you know, politics plays a big part in this. You know, we tend to, there's a discussion about let's just follow proper public health guidelines, or at least, you know, what's, what makes sense, public public health uh, situations. But of course, you got politics playing this. And this is what governments, they have to wear this. And of course, Kenny is dealing with a lot of politics. Uh, he's, got, he's got a base, a conservative base who do does not want him to bring in more restrictions, which explains why he often is very slow to bring in, bring in restrictions and then quickly to raise them. Um, to lift them. So I think there's a lot of politics going on here. Just discussing it in terms of um, the public health, what makes common sense, public health from scientists and doctors doesn't always play well in politics. And this is filtered through a political lens. Um, Hinshaw deals with the government. The government has to wear this, good or bad, the best summer ever, even though Hinshaw seemed to be much in favor of it, ultimately it's Kenny who has to wear that disaster. So, this is why um, governments make decisions. It's not just the medical office of health making a decision un- unilaterally. It has to flow through elected leaders, good or bad.
0: And you led right into my next question, actually, Graham. So I would love to unpack that a little bit further. So putting aside the ethics and the morality and the legalities for a moment, as folks who have studied politicians and politics in Alberta, and with the ongoing decline in our premier's popularity, according to polling and exceptionally low numbers related to how he has handled the pandemic, any thoughts on, I know it's speculative, but what Is he thinking? I mean, is there any precedent in our province's history that leads the UCP to think that they can survive this? I mean, maybe possibly a naive question, but I actually don't understand what the strategy is from that sort of political scope of things and even their individual careers as to how this plays out well.
3: We've been polling in this country a very long time, federally and provincially. If Kenny comes back from this, it will be the biggest comeback in Canadian political history. There is no doubt about that. Polling at his level, the only Alberta premier even close was Alison Redford days before she resigned. The only federal prime minister was Brian Mulroney just before he resigned. And Kim Campbell took over and then gets absolutely shellacked in the election. Uh, I personally don't think he can recover. Uh, I think the popularity is just so low when you're sitting in the 20% approval rating. And Angus Reid said 19% approval over COVID. Um, I've got a lot of, I agree totally with Graham. My entire analysis is that politics has driven Jason Kenney's approach, but it's not been very good politics. Uh, I think he's got a different metric and a different standard than what I'm looking at because uh, it's uh, it's been a disaster, a political no, disaster.
4: I agree with Dwayne, who agrees with me. So yeah. um, the thing is, yeah, this goes back to the, this is a government that was elected on a platform of jobs economy pipelines. And he was beginning, Kenny was actually slipping in the public opinion polls even before the pandemic hit. But when it hit, uh, he wasn't prepared for this. His ideology wasn't prepared for it. his base, doesn't like anything it to do with basically bringing in um, restrictions they don't like. So what's happened here in Alberta is that even though at times we saw 75% of Albertans wanted more restrictions, the Kenny's base did not. But also his caucus does not reflect the views of the majority of Albertans. So even though 75% of Albertans wanted more restrictions um, in, in some, some points during the pandemic, Kenny's caucus didn't reflect that. They reflect basically a lot more of the rural albertans who don't want more restrictions so kenny in a sense is held hostage even though he agrees with them on many many issues he is still held hostage well to his own rhetoric in many cases but also to his caucus and to that base so that's why very often you can see him not listening to the majority of albertans but playing to this base it was a tail wagging the dog so politics very often has driven the response to this and duane is right has led to a disaster in in some areas and the best summer ever is an example but see kenny is all about the economy jobs and pipelines whereas the ndp has done quite well during the pandemic because they sincerely have always believed in protecting the vulnerable putting money into health care and education so so when they attack the government on those fronts it's a very sincere attack you could say yeah this is who the NDP are. so the pandemic in many ways has many ways has played into the NDP's wheelhouse and has caused a major problem for Kenny because it's forced him to go against many things that he believes. And now he's hoping the economy now is starting to recover. And it seems it is starting to get better. He's really focused on that. We'll see the budget next month in terms of maybe a balanced budget. But it comes to the pandemic, he just wants this thing to be over as quickly as possible. That leads to wishful thinking and bad decisions, again, as we saw with the best summer ever. So view that through a public health lens, his responses don't seem logical at all. Played through his own political lens, you can see why he is doing what he is doing.
0: But with the polls coming back the way they have been, why does he keep doing it? Like, even if we're looking at that percentage of his caucus who really does want to support that twenty um, percent of rural voters who want to maintain as much openness as possible, and I don't think that's inti- I don't think that's all rural voters, but that percentage of that hardcore base. What, like now at this stage, as we're hitting this other huge spike in a wave where we're watching our system collapse again? Is there no point at which you have to change course if for nothing else in the sake of your career, even if you don't care about your citizens?
3: The, there's two drivers, that two political drivers that have driven uh, Kenny's behavior outside of the first wave. And even though the first wave, I believe, was relatively successful, he actually apologized for what he did in the first wave. wave uh, explanation one is, is ideology personal responsibility, small government, support private business. And it's not just Kenny's, it's many of his staffers, many of his caucus, his cabinet. The second is party unity. You had a situation in April where a quarter of the UCP caucus condemned the government for bringing in COVID restrictions. That's absolutely unprecedented. Um, You've got a situation of a very new party that was put together that had a lot of differences between the progressive conservatives and the wild rose. The only thing they agree on is they dislike the NDP and dislike Rachel Notley and dislike whatever they think socialism is. This party is incredibly divided over um, COVID. You've got the, the group that is condemning restrictions, but we're also hearing people um, who are criticizing the government for a lack. Of restrictions. And so I think managing caucus relations has been a major driver for Kenny, and he must believe that if he can keep the party together and he can balance the budget, people will forget about COVID in 14 months and he'll get reelected. I'm very doubtful of that, but I think that's the calculation that's being made.
0: So if we put away for a moment this provincial quagmire of the legal responsibilities of the office versus the advisory responsibilities of the chief medical officer of health, we've gotten a lot of questions sort of on that larger level, whether it be federal level. Um, Given all of the government inaction um, that continues to put Albertans in harm's way, is there anything that Can be done. So, the question of can we take action at a federal level? Can't do protests, obviously, because of Omicron transmissibility, but um, what medical legal options might have a bit of traction, I think, at that sort of, you know, how will there ever be any accountability or liability for the over 3,400 Albertans we've lost, Um, especially for the children? A lot of comments on that. Maybe to um, Dr. Um, both, both of, both of my lawyer doctors. <laughs> uh
5: Lorraine, you want to take a start on this, and no? I'll back. Up.
2: <laughs> sure. So, I think from a, a legal perspective, there is this uh, real desire that people have to find the government negligent when something has gone wrong. I think, though, that the the primary legal means to hold elected officials, officials accountable is an election. Um, negligence law and, and saying that uh, government is liable for these deaths. That's a real uphill climb legally. The, the concept of negligence developed between private parties and, and not between government actors. And as it's been adapted to the concept of government actors, um, the courts have been pretty limited in allowing people to, to sue the government in negligence. and. The the policy reasons for that are, for example, um, the idea that elected officials should should be the decision makers rather than the courts, or ideas around uh, unlimited liability of government in the context of a pandemic. And so, while there is a desire to hold the government liable in negligence, it uh, it, it it's it's an uphill battle. Uh,
5: yeah, I completely agree with that. And and the flip side of that, of course, is that our country and uh, the structure of our constitution and legal arrangements is really designed uh, for what we in law call cooperative federalism. The idea is not that these gov- levels of government fight, but they, that they actually work together to achieve something. Uh, and, and, and if there's any opportunity in terms of how they can use law effectively, it is that they actually cooperate to do things. Now, we we'll of course love to see that. we we'll of course love to see uh, federal and provincial governments that work together to achieve goals, especially in a pandemic, uh, where, again, we have to sort of prioritize the fact that there's this is in the community and we need to stand that out. But that, that just doesn't exist. And I think in the absence of that, the question of accountability really comes down to uh, elections, but also to citizens being able to stand up and say, look, we, we're going to hold you accountable. We we will protest your decisions. We will, uh, you know." do everything within our power as citizens because the election is too far out. And I don't think we should lose sight of that opportunity. We saw how that worked very well in the summer uh, where people got out and said, you have to reinstate public health measures. Uh, and you know, the government might say, look, that wasn't what pushed us, but it, I think it helped. And I think we have to understand that ultimately, the government is not on its own uh, doing, they didn't put themselves there. We put them there and we have to be able to stand up and say, I think we've kind of had enough, and an election is too far out, so we're going to do something about it
0: Anyone else have any other thoughts to add on that
3: the The whole federalism aspect is absolutely fascinating if I can put my heart away and put my brain on uh because you've got one federal government dealing with thirteen jurisdictions. Uh, and we were seeing very different responses by each of the provinces. Uh, The federal government is responsible for the border. The the federal government was responsible for acquiring vaccines. The federal government was providing economic supports for individuals and companies, uh, dramatically so. Um, The provinces were in charge of vaccine distribution, and I will say that I thought the Kenny government did a good job at distributing the vaccines in a decentralized manner. But they're also responsible for communications, and they're also responsible for testing, and they're also responsible um, for communication around vaccines, which they have not done. Which is why Alberta has been pummeled uh, over the last several waves much more than the uh, than the other uh, provinces. Uh, we've also seen any time that Kenny gets into trouble, uh, Graham's already chuckling. His first uh, his first response is to bash the federal government, even though justin trudeau did better in 2021 in the middle of the pandemic than he did in 2019 in alberta
4: and yeah and this is another issue of course during the pandemic you should have gotten us working together and and at the beginning you get a sense that kenny was working relatively well with trudeau but Dwayne is right that um kenny will at a drop of a hat will find an excuse to attack trudeau and uh, so this is of course, caused a problem. And again, this goes back to his base. I've talked to people in his base, very conservatives, uh, very conservative conservatives, who think that Kenny has not done enough to bash Trudeau. They want to see him out there fighting against Trudeau. That's one reason why they had, of course, we had that uh, referendum last fall on equalization. His base wants him to see wants to see him fighting against Trudeau tooth and nail. When in fact, we depend on the federal government for many things including of course the vaccines and just working during a pandemic so so there's that um as for the election being far away i guess in a sense it is but it's also not it's moving pretty quickly and um, we're into the red zone the election is going to be held may 29th of next year unless something else changes and you're going to start seeing i think kenny and his cabinet start paying a lot more attention to Albertans in the next year because they are heading into an election. Uh, Kenny has a leadership review coming up. And the whole problem for him there is that a lot of members of his own party think he's done too much on the pandemic, as I've mentioned before. So he's the be gunning for him. You got Brian Jean gunning for him. But he'll also have to try and win over If He wins that leadership review. He has to win over Albertans. So he has to shift his, his priorities uh, away from the people who want fewer restrictions and actually deal with the pandemic. And going back to what Dwayne said, Kenny is ultimately hoping the price of oil goes up and the pandemic goes down.
0: Still on, the, oh, go for it.
2: No, I was just—I was just going to say that uh, you know one of the problems, apart from the the politics of of the Trudeau and the, the critiques of Trudeau, I think it's been detrimental from a, a public health perspective. You know, when when the premier has airtime to talk about masks or vaccines instead of talking about vaccines being safe and effective, you should go get one. Instead, we hear him complaining about Trudeau and procurement, and and we see the same thing on the testing, and it's it's just messaging and it's not helping the the, the pandemic any
5: yeah and let, let me just add quickly to that that you know i think i i at this point has mentioned before by, by doing and, and uh graham about how he he politicizes the 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 pandemic he, politics is the lead is following that's that's his uh his truth and the gospel is preaching here and i, I think we need to consider how uh in terms of the discussion we are having before about, about how we manage a pandemic and who has authority. We really need to consider what our Albertans uh, should think about that and what we ought to think about, the notion that when there's something that amounts to a public health emergency within our province, that, that politics then becomes the lead in how we deal with that. And I just want to leave that. There. I think it's worth reflecting uh, that we really want to have a balance. We want to have a government that understands the gravity of the situation, provides support, uh, uh, and seeks an end that is not overly political, because I don't think politics uh, can deliver us in a moment where we need to have more more factors like health, like medicine, like science, play a role within that as well.
0: I was looking at the um, federal government's plan for emergency preparedness and public health response in biological events, and one of the roles and responsibilities of provinces was to ensure that there was effective messaging throughout the jurisdictions that was consistent with what the Public Health Agency of Canada was saying. And it saddens me to no end that we have been in this state for The last, you know, two years, years specifically, where we, our provincial government doesn't seem to be able to say the word airborne, Um, where we have Teresa Tam, Dr. Tam, now, now, you know, happily wearing her N95, which is met with messaging of, you know, how flimsy of a surgical mask can Kenny appear in and how many cloth masks can Dr. Henshaw put on at the same time. And it is really challenging as a human. Um, who is not a legal expert and who is not a medical expert, to rationalize, sympathize, and synthesize that complete disconnect in the messaging. On another legal note, one of the questions that we received was whether or not people felt that the Alberta government and the chief medical officer of health had contravened the UN connection or UN convention on the rights of a child. Um, I believe that they are specifically asking about article 24, um, which relates to state parties, recognizing that rights of child relevant all of that sort of jazz with number C being that it is the responsibility of member states to combat disease and, um, in tiny humans, as well as to diminish infant and child mortality, which we have now lost five under 19-year-olds um, during the last two years, as Dr. Vipon pointed out, three so far this year. Um, and yeah, what your thoughts are on that?
5: Uh So I think Lauren already uh, covered the subject before, but I I think generally speaking, it is extremely difficult to hold the government accountable for policy decisions through courts. Uh, And so the answer will be the same really. If you went to court, you'll be looking first to actually find a legal basis uh, in Canadian law. Uh, And uh, if you're looking at international law, international law has to have been received into Canada. uh, And in many cases, uh, received into into uh, provincial law or some local law, uh, and 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 so while the courts can treat the UN Convention uh, as an instrument that is that guides them in the way they make decisions and in the way they uh, uh, resolve cases, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that you can just go directly from that section mm-hmm. of the UN Charter to holding governments responsible. The obstacles are just too much. Uh, one obstacle uh, would be whether the law has been received into Canada and its status within Canada and how the courts are gonna use it. But the main obstacle, the the main obstacle as uh, Dr. Harkasel explained before, is really that uh, the mechanism for holding governments accountable for negligent decisions uh, through our courts is quite limited, if not impossible. Um, As a matter of fact, in some cases it is legislated in some context that you can't actually do it. You know, for example, in municipal uh, law, uh, you know, you, you couldn't sue some municipalities uh, for negligent uh, actions, whether, you know, they are operational in nature or policy related. So it's, it's quite difficult. I don't think it's an avenue that people should be pursuing, even if you were to get, uh, you know, the money to hire a lawyer to do that for you.
3: I mean, in, in a sense, that's similar to all of the suits that we have seen throughout the pandemic by the anti restrictions crowd anti vax crowd. I don't think they've won a single case and uh, that they've launched multiple cases. Courts are going to defer to government activity uh, in a pandemic.
2: Yeah, I think that um, you know the the to, Duane is is uh, referring to just for the for the viewers a number of of charter challenges where individuals are claiming that legal claims infringe on their on their charter rights, and it is true that a variety of the the public health measures do limit our our charter rights, but it's important to note that those that those rights are not absolute, and um, the courts are are and have been. Um, quite deferential to, to to governments in terms of of those cases and and of course the government has a, a pressing reason to limit individual rights in this in this context
4: I don't have much to add um you guys are more expert in this area uh one thing is actually tangential to this is the fact that we have 13 jurisdictions in Alberta, sorry, Canada that deliver healthcare. The, the, the provinces are responsible for delivering healthcare and they do it their own way. The federal government uh, is responsible like for the, the armed forces, healthcare and armed forces and first nations, but it comes to actually delivery of healthcare. Uh, there's 13 different jurisdictions, which of course adds to the confusion, confusion as to what actually is being done. Um, And it comes to, uh, I just defer to my colleagues here, when it comes to the the legal issues, Um, and Dwayne's right, every um, court case I've seen basically sides with the government, and the courts will defer to to the government. But of course, we have 13 different jurisdictions delivering healthcare, plus the federal government,
5: and it can get really confusing as to what's actually going on. But but just to add very quickly, I think what people are really bothered about is the fact that uh, and I've heard some people have said this to me, we seem to be at the mercy of governments once we've elected them. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, and for it's a long time to be at the mercy of a government you don't like. It doesn't matter what side of the you know, political aisle you sit on. Uh, and I think people have always thought that the courts present an avenue for challenging that. And that's true to some, to some extent. But I think in the context of what we're facing right now, it's really important to remember that at election time, uh, when it comes to a crisis of this nature, courts do give a, quite a bit of leeway to governments to be able to handle things like this. Uh, and the, the nature of our federalism also demands that the federal government doesn't just wake up one day and just go, we're jumping into Alberta to go and start doing things. They, they wouldn't do that. It's, it's politically fraught. So I think the, the key thing is elect good governments. <laughs> you know, it's, That's really the bottom line. Elect a government. Don't, don't ignore healthcare when the next election comes. It's turned out to be a central issue of our time. So when the election comes, think about health care and the kind of health care you want to have uh, and what you want to happen to you in a crisis and vote for the kind of government you think will deliver that.
4: At uh, that point, uh, that's, an, that's what the NDP is going to be doing uh, this year is focusing on health care and reminding people what happened during the pandemic. And that plays into their wheelhouse, as I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, politically, the election is coming. Believe me, it's coming really fast for the politicians. It may seem really slow for uh, the average person, but for politicians, it's coming screaming at us just over a year away. So expect the NDP to be playing up health and the public health and what happened during the pandemic to remind Albertans that uh, this government uh, tripped up its own own feet many times, made bad decisions. So even though Kenny is trying to focus on the economy and a recovery, uh, the pandemic is a major issue for him. So expect the NDP to be all over him Uh, Just over a year from now during the campaign.
3: Well, and it's not just waiting for a provincial election, right? I mentioned the federal election and how the pandemic played in that. We also had municipal elections. And um, what hurt uh, in Calgary, Jeremy Farkas, is when he came out and was the only councillor against the mask mandate. Uh, and uh, Jody Gondek campaigned actively against Jason Kenney and his handling of the pandemic. And Jody Gondek is now mayor of Calvary. Um, every other provincial government, B.C., uh, New Brunswick, Saskatchewan were all reelected. But in Nova Scotia, it wasn't. So people are making decisions uh, in elections uh, based on the government's performance at I mean- whatever level of government they're at. And, and Dwayne's a good point because you think back to the federal election where the NDP
4: got two seats, they had one, they had two, and then the Liberals won two. Um, and that was seem to be a reflection of, of people's anger at the, uh, at the provincial government, at Kenny. So uh, people who were supporting conservatives in the past just sat on their hands. They didn't go vote. Um, but there was definitely a backlash that hurt the federal conservatives in Alberta because of the deep unpopularity that Kenny is undergoing.
0: So related to all of that, or as an adjunct, historically, as we've gotten closer to elections, and if we continue this trajectory upward, um, which with minimal restrictions in place is probably going to continue to hammer us for the next little bit. What have been some things in the past of this province, that have helped encourage a government to listen to the 70% that are begging, screaming, and
3: pleading for some help and humanity? Well, let's look at Alison Redford, right? Uh, Alison Redford was pushed out as premier between an election uh, because she lost the support of her party. And why did she lose the support of her party? She lost the support of her party because her poll numbers just plummeted uh, and uh, fundraising dried up. Uh, If we look at um, the situation that Kenny's in right now, forget about waiting for an election. As Graham already mentioned, he's up for a leadership review in April. There's clear dissension within his own party. um, And the conservatives under different parties have been pretty quick to toss leaders overboard. Uh, Even someone as powerful as Ralph Klein ended up leaving because of a a lack of support in a uh, leadership review. Uh, I think um, some of the uh, public protests that occurred in the summer, uh, as Becca and Lorraine have talked about, I think that forced a change in direction, right? So this idea that there's carte blanche for four years, I don't think is true. There's all sorts of pressure points that can be placed on a government. And if you don't think that Jason Kenny is feeling pressure, he's facing pressure from all sides.
0: How yeah. do you combat? I'm just going to add one little bit into this as well though. How do we as citizens combat things like what happened in minister Aheer's riding? And so when you have someone in power who seems to be so I don't know, desperate to hold on to it or so convinced that they can that they it feels like change the rules or the goalposts on a daily basis. And as an average Albertan, makes it exceptionally challenging to advocate for what, yes, for what might lead to change. I'll just throw that into the mix with the other question.
3: So I think what the question is referring to is in the AGM in Leela here's riding, there were some real shenanigans that went on, and the entire board was replaced. By Kenny loyalists uh, Leela here has been outspoken in her criticism of premier Kenny, which is one of the reasons he punted her from cabinet and now is trying to punt her as, as an MLA. I think in this case, that's up to members of the UCP who describe themselves as a grassroots party. Um, he did stage manage the AGM, uh, back in the fall. Let's see what happens in April. But he's he also tried to prevent Brian Jean from becoming a UCP nominee in Fort McMurray. He wasn't successful at that. And Brian Jean is running for a seat as a member of the party on a platform of demanding that the Premier resign. Um, I haven't been around as long as Graham has, but I'm pretty sure Graham is going to say he's never seen that happen before.
4: I've never seen that happen before. Uh, yeah, the thing is about Kenny... I got to say, though, when, when you were talking about um, Alison Redford losing support of the party, the thing is, she had a leadership review in uh, 2013, in November, December, and she got 77%. The party is saying we're, we're behind her, but they really weren't behind her. This was stage managed. Same with Ed Stelmack in 2009, got 77% at a leadership review, and he was out 14 months later. Alison Redford was out four months later. So um, getting to the point of Uh, Back to the point of Kenny's uh, leadership review, this can be easily stage-managed. It's a big fight. I talked to some members, uh, Richard Gottfried, MLA from Calgary Fish Creek. His writing association is pushing for uh, a province-wide vote of all members on Kenny's leadership. Uh, Kenny and his supporters in the the UCP headquarters want it to be uh, in place uh, April 9th in Red Deer. Only those who show up can cast a ballot in favor or not in favor of Kenny, but we've seen in the past with Alison Redford and um, Ed Stelmeck, these in-person meetings can be easily manipulated. And the problem for the party, you no, know, Dwayne's mentioned this in the past, is that if you have a party showing like 77% support for a premier who's running at, at 19% in the public opinion polls, there's a real disconnect, the public will notice, between what how they feel towards a premier and how the party is doing. So um, Kenny's under a lot of pressure, and even if he was to survive a leadership review, I think he's, he will. If it's still going to be one person, one vote inside that hall, it does not mean he will survive until next year. I'm not convinced that he, he will be kicked out before the next year. But I think that surviving the leadership review is not really a test of how people really feel about the premier. So you go back to this idea about what can the average person do? This is internal party politics. Unless you're actually a member of the UCP, there's not much you can do. But I think that as we get closer to the election, we will see the UCP start to pay a lot more attention uh, to how the public feels on many issues. And they're hoping for some good news, but, but you've got party politics versus the public, and the two don't always mix.
5: So I'm not a, a, a you know a politician or somebody who is versed in in political science, but I think there's something that people who are not UCP supporters can do, uh, and I think there is a lot that people who are not UCP supporters can do or people who don't like the way this government has handled uh, their first four years in power. And I think uh, that what they can do really needs to start now. Uh, I think there's a a lot of, sometimes a lot of complacency in terms of how we approach uh, elections and politics and and who gets into power and who gets to govern. Uh, And then you see, you know, that flips over once the the people in power and then people start to realize how important these governments are to their lives. Uh, the the provincial government is quite close to our lives and affects our lives in 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 a lot of ways and I, and I think if you're somebody who has, doesn't like what has gone on what the first thing you have to do is vote but i, I also think you need to get involved in trying to elect the governments that you want i i don't plan to sit on my hands for the next election uh, if i have to rent uh you know a van and uh with uh, Dr. Hardcastle drive around Alberta, talking to people about healthcare and health policy and the kind of healthcare you should want in the 20, in the in the in twenty first century. I would, um, you know, I've never done that before, but you know, I'll get my if I have to get a cowboy hat and and hit and a the blue truck and a blue truck and and hit the you know the prairies. I will. Yeah. <laughs> I
2: look forward to that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I think to, to sort of bring this around, though, to, to, to the COVID issue, I think one of the, the problems here, and, and this just sort of illustrates this, is how, um, how how politicizing the pandemic can be just so detrimental to our public health efforts. And I think that Kenny's desire to try to keep <laughs> You know, his voters that are for restrictions, voters that are against restrictions happy and his caucus members that are for restrictions, his caucus members that are against restrictions happy. I mean, in some ways, he was never going to keep all of those people happy. And so, um, you know, one one would have hoped that he would he would instead follow the, the science. Um, but but that it just isn't isn't what we've seen happen, unfortunately.
0: We are getting towards the end of our hour, so I will move us momentarily towards final thoughts, um, messages for folks at home, both legal and political, and all of that sort of jazz. Um, But I would like to briefly revisit that. I like to believe that our elected officials are not evil, inhumane people, and that they do feel some concern over the loss of life and the crushing of our healthcare system, and that there is some sort of rationale that I am not privy to. Any thoughts around... Beyond that, again, that base, like, ah, it's just that for me, it always comes down to what is the goal? Is it, I mean, there was recently a study published in The Lancet that showed that um, the economics of a sick population in terms of keeping your economy strong were not the answer, that economies that stayed wide open and populations got sicker and sicker and sicker was not the way to go about it. And so, is it, is it as long as we keep the oil flowing, we can afford to say goodbye to primarily old people and children because they are not contributing to the tax base the same? I, it's, it's the days where I just want to pull my hair out and cry, where I just don't understand why politics and humanity can't work in this province in a way that isn't constantly polarizing.
3: I wouldn't say it's politics versus humanity. I think people have different views on the policies that should occur. Just the issue of whether K to 12 kids should go back to school, that's an incredibly divisive issue. Depending on which framework you're looking at, are you looking at the mental health of the child? Are you looking at the possible health risk of the child? Are you looking at the potential health risk of teachers and staffers? There's no easy answer here, and it's not that some people are good and some people are evil. They have differing views. Um, there's differing views about well, if we lock down even harder, we may you know push out the uh, the disease, but at what overall cost? to society. Um, so, uh, you know, with the exception of, of the conspiracy-minded anti-vaxxers that this is somehow microchips uh, that Bill Gates is controlling, I think the vast majority of people want the COVID to be over, want the path to go forward, but we just disagree on how to go about doing that. And that's where it comes to, what is your motivation? What is actually driving your decision-making? And so, how do we uh, uh, encourage a,
0: the government to share that? And Uba,ka please. But so that's. Uh, offer
3: a, of a, of
5: a nuanced disagreement. Sorry, Michelle. Uh, just a nuanced disagreement. I actually think there's some humanity that's getting lost in this. I, I didn't see the school debate as one between mental health and and you know, should kids be free from disease. I saw it as a, as incompetence really, a government that just couldn't procure masks, good masks and ventilation. That's just sheer incompetence. Some schools today don't have masks still. They promised the masks will be there by this week. Some schools are reporting they don't have masks. So so there's a a, a side to it where the government is not in touch with the basic humanity of people who are subject to their rules and to their influence. Uh, You know, I have to keep my kids at home, right? Uh, And uh, not because I don't want them to go back to school, because it's not safe for my younger daughter to go back to school. Uh, because there's the disease out there and, you know, I don't want her to end up with a chronic illness. And the thing that the government would need to do is not become me, but simply provide teachers with good masks and provide ventilation. That is a loss of humanity. And we have to sort of always point to that. And there's been numerous examples through this pandemic where the government has failed to show basic humanity. Pre-existing conditions when people die, come on, that's a loss of humanity. That is not politics. That's just sheer wickedness, right? Best summer ever. That is sheer wickedness, in my opinion. Uh, I just want to say that I um, think that Kenny caused problems
4: for himself going back to 2019 to come to this humanity issue where he downplayed the lethality of uh, COVID. And he said it's only the 11th leading cause of death, not even the top 10. He um, compared it to the flu. And at one point, he said, roughly, he was saying, now the average uh, death uh age is like 84 and the average death normally is 80 82. so 84 die of COVID. 82 is normal uh life expectancy i'm not sure of those actual numbers but the point he was trying to make was that people who are dying from COVID are actually outliving the average life expectancy anyway so they get the sense that he doesn't really care about it so that he set up the bad optics for himself going back to the summer of 2019 by trying to downplay the lethality and the danger of COVID and that's continued to haunt him so there's a context there people can point to and say you said it was like the flu back in 2019 he said no I didn't but he did call it a flu-like disease so he has created a problem for himself in the optics and so the context has been there for the last well year and a half now going into two years where he has done damage to himself that is very hard to uh, undo
3: I I agree with Ubeka about open for summer. That was the most disastrous policy throughout the pandemic. But I don't think he said open for summer knowing that it was going to be a disaster. I think he cherry-picked data. I think he looked for the most optimistic scenario. I think he uh, hoped that it would be open for summer. And that, I think, gets to your question around competency, uh, that they realized pretty early that their data was wrong, they realized that Britain was an outlier, but they still went ahead uh, with it. And I think he went with it because this was his political plan: that if he could open for summer, open forever, the pandemic is over, deal with it, uh, have a stampede, that his political fortunes would would recover. Whether that is motivated reasoning, whether that's evil, I'll let people uh, decide. But I think we can both agree it was the worst error throughout the pandemic
4: and i gotta say though Dwayne, um kenny did start attacking people immediately who were questioning oh, yeah. you know he, he, he <laughs> attacked the reporter asked him on june 18th when was, uh, we're gonna open for summer um best summer ever that was june 18th a reporter from the ctv asked him about the fourth wave and kenny just uh, attacked the reporter he attacked anybody any expert on um Twitter or social media who was mentioning a possible fourth <laughs> wave. Kenny just said that's just somebody, some nobody on Twitter. Fear
3: mongering, yeah.
4: Yeah, fear mongering. So he, he would attack demonize So wasn't this a case of saying, look, I'm hoping this is gonna, gonna work and um, yep. fingers crossed, let's do the best thing possible. We're here to, to protect each other. He would attack anybody who disagreed with him. He uh, poo-pooed the idea of a fourth wave. That he tries to gaslight us in uh, September, saying he already he always knew there would be a fourth wave. So th- the problem is, again, going back to Kenny causing problems for himself. He has this way of making these declarative statements. You know, best summer ever is, of course, one example, a big example, the worst example. But getting himself, putting himself into a corner that he's has had trouble backing out of when he said, for example, last year he would never bring in a vaccine passport. Then he had to bring one in, but he called it a restrictions exemption program, not willing to uh, admit he had to go back on his word. And it's a problem here with Kenny's own character and his personality in terms of how he deals with these issues. He backs himself into a corner. The rhetoric does that. He's a hostage to his own rhetoric many times. And that creates problems not just for him politically. It can create problems for us when it comes to dealing with a pandemic
3: even made baseball caps with open for summer on it and fundraised off it. Yeah.
0: And how come there was no learning from that? We are in the exact same space right now where we have essentially eliminated testing, tracing and isolating. I know we have the wastewater data, but we did have some of that in the summer beforehand. And we are in this uphill climb again, where we are again over a thousand cases in hospital, where we are again killing our healthcare workers. You know, both Kenny and Hinshaw have said, okay, maybe open for summer, best summer ever was a bit of a mistake, but they've made no meaningful actions to prevent that from happening this time around. Makes me sad. Final thoughts, friends, before we say goodbye.
2: all right i'll go first so i think just to to bring together several of the discussion points from you know calling experts fear-mongering to independence to what should the public do i mean not to not to sort of pitch pitch ourselves but i think that one of the you know one of the 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 issues that that came up in the debates around what should the chief medical officer's role be is well if she's you know going to be a, a civil servant that backs the policies of government should there be someone to provide the public with that scientific advice so that they can they can access that and that came out in in the ontario long-term care commission in covid they said that the chief medical officer of health does and should um, have a role an independent role to provide the public with that information so that the public can then use that information to push back against government and say here's the science and you're not doing it um, you know obviously we're not going to get that in Alberta hinshaw is not going to uh, ad- adopt that kind of role that's that's not the culture we have here and so I would just encourage the public um to not get their information from the government from the chief medical officer of health but to to look to some of the experts and there are many credible experts out there and 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 many of them have participated in in these panels and um you know if the the experts are advising medical masks but you're, vulnerable and 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 other experts are saying to upgrade your masks, then you need to do what's best for you. You shouldn't view the government's public health restrictions as being these will keep you safe. You should view them as this is what the government is willing to do, but to keep yourself safe you you may need to do more. So in some ways people need to to take things into their own hands.
3: And I will say when you when you look at my closing line would be when you look at two years worth of responses, with the exception of the first wave, which I think they, the government handled well because they threw away the ideological play, playbook and went with the pragmatic approach. Ever since then, it's been, they're going to act later than any other province. When they do act, it will be weaker or more confusing than any other province. And in that gap between doing the right thing and the wrong thing, they are going to demonize anybody who criticizes them. And we've seen that over and over and over again. And the premier will disappear at the beginning of the wave.
5: So I, I agree with all the points that have been raised. And I want to add that uh, we really should see the courts as a, as a backstop. Uh, and, you know, I, I de- it, they're, they're there for when things break. Uh, and, you know, in the context of a pandemic, uh, there's a lot of leeway given to governments to be able to act. And I think there's a lot of confusion between what is and what ought to be. Uh, I think if you're really concerned about what ought to be and you know how you want society to be uh, uh, organized, uh, you really should think about elections and why they matter and how you can influence uh, elections in a way that achieves uh, benefit uh, overall benefit for society. Uh, but in terms of using the courts and using the law, that is just an expensive fraud process sometimes, and it doesn't work quite well uh, for achieving anything that's gonna move the collective ahead in the context of a pandemic.
4: And just to wrap up, what Kenny is hoping for is that we have short memories and voters very often have short memories. So a year from now, if the pandemic really is under control and we can sort of see it in the back the rear view mirror and the economy is picking up. So that's what Kenny is really betting on, that things improve in the economy, Get more jobs. And it's really puffing up the stats right now, and these different programs he's talking about and um, projects that are being announced. Some of them are real. Some, to me, are just puffed up. But he's hoping next year that the pandemic is behind us, economy is recovering, people have short memories, and will be focused on the economy, jobs, and maybe pipelines as opposed to the pandemic. The NDP is going to be pushing healthcare because healthcare is a huge issue, of course, always has been, always will, but particularly so during the pandemic. So, you know, time will tell to see what actually happens. If this pandemic continues, then Kenny is in real trouble. But if it starts to get better and it gets knocked back, you can, you can see a route for Kenny to win re-election. But it's all about people uh, keeping in mind what happened and is happening during the pandemic to remind themselves what actually happened. So when they go do go to vote, it's not just about what may be the big issue that day, but what's actually happened over the last, well, three years out, but four years in the election actually takes place.
0: Thank you all so very much for your authenticity, your honesty, and your expert reflections on a really fast hour long through a very long 20 months in Alberta. Um, we will be back tomorrow with a panel of experts from coast to coast to coast with another look at COVID-19 and the Omicron wave across the entire country. We will be joined once again by Dr. David Fisman from Ontario, Dr. Anne Berha for the first time from POP, Quebec, Dr. Lynn Filiatro from POP, BC, Dr. Noel Gibney from Alberta, and the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Catherine Smart, from the Yukon. I am very excitedly nervous about trying to work our way through tomorrow's conversation. Um, it's just, it's going to be amazing. So if you have the opportunity to join in, please do. As always, stay safe, Alberta. Remember, COVID 19 is airborne, and wear the best mask with the securest fit you have access to. And vaccines are still saving lives.